Building your business was hard. Getting out of it on your terms can be even harder. Welcome to the Tobin Leff M&A Podcast, where you can rewrite the next chapter of your life with the help of business owners who have been in your shoes. In the past decade, Tobin Leff has completed over 125 successful merger and acquisition and exit planning engagements across the U.S. with a focus on marketing, advertising, PR, and digital firms. Go online to TobinLeff.com to learn about the latest in business so that you can build and monetize your company value. Join us now for today's conversation. Hello, hello, and welcome to today's edition of the Tobin Leff M&A podcast. I am Scott Leff, the third syllable in Tobin Leff, and delighted to be with you again. Even more delighted to be joined by my partner and one of my fellow uh, domain experts, Chuck Gottschalk. Uh, If you haven't met Chuck before, he is a former CPA with Ernst & Young and moved from there into private industry, working with a family office where he was, among other things, running their mergers and acquisitions process. He's been in the C-suite of other independently owned companies and has a wealth of knowledge to bring to us today. So Chuck, welcome. Well, Scott, thanks. This is a kind of exciting for me. This is my uh, maiden voyage on a podcast, so I feel like uh, it's a new uh, uh, territory for me, and I'm excited to share some thoughts and experiences I've had through the years in this area, and I look forward to uh, hopefully providing some insights uh, for people to consider. Great. Well, Chuck's the perfect guy for today because we're talking about private equity and what that means to business owners and agency owners when it comes time to think about selling your business or agency and exploring a little bit how in the right circumstances, private equity can get you some really attractive deals, maybe even better than you would anticipate. So to kick things off, let's start with the basics, Chuck. What is private equity? So Scott, private equity uh, basically refers to the capital investment that's made into companies and they're not publicly traded. So the owners of private equity uh, tend to be like shareholders of public companies and they're mostly passive, interested, uh, you know, not interested in the day-to-day operations and really just interested in the overall returns. Now, um, most private equity firms are owned through uh, a group of people called accredited investors. You have to meet certain criteria to uh, to to own um, an interest in a private equity firm. And these are uh, deemed people who are high net worth. There's some criteria out there that's uh, publicly uh, available about who they would be. And the owners um, of the private equity uh, might not seem that relevant to somebody that might consider selling to a private equity group, but I always think that it's important to know who, um, who the buyers are. And so I think it's important to understand who these people are and what they're looking for. And these accredited investors tend to be um, more sophisticated investors and they understand the risk associated with investments as well as the advantages of, um, of using leverage and other uh, techniques to improve the overall returns. Now, um, the, um, the group that, that, that most often falls in this class would be your pension funds, your insurance funds, and your high net worth individuals. But um, the, these um, investors are not the managers of the private equity. And 
really in many ways, if you're going to sell to a private equity group, you're going to sell to the managers. And the managers are seasoned operators and people with experience in uh, margin improvement, cash management. And um, these folks um, who often have a small portion of the total investment of the private equity um, are not passive like the, the majority owners of private equity. They are very active and um, they, uh, they are the people that you'll be selling to. So you really should, should meet those people, those managers, if you're gonna consider to sell. So we've got a group of private investors who put up money and then managers who manage that money and go out and seek investments for them. The managers taking a more active role often with those investments, but the investors in the background looking for some level of return, it sounds like. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And, and these managers, they're going to go out there and they're going to try to get 51% of a, of a business. And they don't need to get 51% for their particular private equity fund, but they'll want the private equity groups to own 51% so that they can control it in a private equity environment and that it can have the, the benefits of, of being um, owned by private equity. And, and when you say they want 51%, that's all they want or at least 51%? Yeah, it, it's at least 51%. Uh, they're, they're, uh, they're always happy to, to have um, sellers uh, come along with a piece of it, but they, 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 they're not interested in a minority interest. They, they really want um, the private equity groups to control it. So you'd have three private equity firms that had 20% each for 60% total, and that would be completely acceptable. But um, any one of those private equity firms... Uh, and, and certainly in the Morricom space would never be interested in just a 20% interest with the, the uh, retaining 80% uh, owned by the sort of existing management team. No, and actually in our experience with these deals, we've found that generally the private equity firms who look at our, our companies that we are representing on the sell side really want to take over the total ownership of the company. Although when I say that, with the selling owners retaining some equity, uh, but in a very minority position. I know that's what we're going to talk about a little later when we talk about the returns that the seller can get. Yeah. But, but having set this up, let's segue into marketing, advertising, digital, PR, other types of communications agencies. Why would private equity be interested in them? So, um, that's, a, that's such a, uh, a, a simple question to answer because at their core, private equity is interested in buying a company in a Marcom space, in an automotive parts space, in the digital space, in all the spaces for the same exact reason. And they're buying that company so they can resell it down the road three to five years for a premium. It's really that simple. They want to buy things that they think that they can increase the value of their investment on and get a good return. It's, um, it's just that. They're not gonna be seduced by industries um, or adverse to industries. Uh, they're simply attracted to making money and adverse to, to losing money. This is uh, why the same private equity firm could own an auto parts, parts manufacturer and they could own a Marcom company. Um, they have a, uh, a range of investment preferences. Some are more strict financiers and they just wanna be passive investors. Um, but others are, are uh, much more involved and uh, they, they're more active investors and they want to provide operational support to grow the company 
to make money for themselves. Um, as the reasons why, uh, you know, going back to your, the heart of your question, purchasing marketing, advertising, or digital companies would be attractive to a private equity firm. This would be based on a uh, pattern of these uh, companies consistently growing both the top line and the bottom line. No different than the way, like I said, they would evaluate the auto industry. Um, now, this does not mean that uh, every year has to be an increase the top line and the bottom line. Certainly, in a COVID environment, most companies will show a down year in 2020. But it's the pattern they're looking for. And they're looking for that consistent pattern over time, the consistent um, uh, management. And, and you know, this is why Tobin left actively works with the 200 private equity firms, you know, we're in the Marcom space and they're very interested in what we have to talk about. And we've got 60 of these companies that are already invested in the Marcom space. So, you know, the good news is we got 30% of them buying Marcom companies. Uh, the great news is we have a chance with the other 70% to let them see why this is a good space to be in. Excellent. And I think it's important to point out here uh, that with marketing and marketing related companies, private equity firms to do a purchase are looking at purchases for investment purposes. Sometimes when we talk with clients, we hear them come to us and say, well, should we go to private equity? Would they want to buy us because then we can provide marketing for all the companies they own? And in my experience, the answer to that is no, they're not going to buy you for that reason. Would you agree or disagree? I do agree that that's, that's absolutely the case. But um, what they also will do is they have these annual meetings where they bring all of their platform companies together and um, that's a chance to, to come and talk to uh, the, the C-suite of all the other companies. And it's a chance for, for you to pitch your, your Marcom services or what have you. And I like to think that as parachuting in to the top of the building, as opposed to having to, to, to fight your way from the ground floor up. So although they, they will not promise you any business and uh, they won't encourage people to overpay for services, they will give you access. And if you have a good product to deliver, you're going to get a chance and all things being equal, they would prefer that the other platform companies buy from each other, but that's truly all things being equal. They would never ask the company to overpay for, for a service uh, from one of their platform companies. Everybody has to stand on their own. Each investment has to stand on its own. And if they don't have a marketing platform, they're not going to buy you for that purpose. But that then begs the question, what is a platform and what's the difference between being purchased by private equity as a, a platform company or a bolt-on? A platform company is generally a, a company that has at least $5 million of, of EBITDA and 20% of profit margin. And um, I say that minimum because that's going to depend on the size of the private equity firm. There are private equity firms that won't even look at a deal that's less than $50 million for a platform. And uh, you should think of the platform as an industry that a private equity firm is investing into for the first time. You know, for example, I keep saying automotive manufacturer or a Marcom company. Now the bolt-on generally requires at least a million dollars of EBITDA and a 20% margin again, because they're looking for successful companies. And a bolt-on is one that is acquired and attached or literally bolted on to the platform or the core company. Now, as you know, my background is, is finance, so I'll, I'll go after the finance guys first. And, you know, they're gonna look for the economy of scales and the economy of scales will be to say, perhaps immediately eliminate the CFO or the controller of the bolt-on company. And they're gonna gain instant additional profitability. 
And uh, the bolt-ons often come with less risk as the private equity uh, firm will have experience in the space. So they know where they're going and they, they know the underlying company. And um, companies with less than five million are ideally positioned to be bolt-ons for private equity as opposed to being a platform company. And um, as you know, when we talked about those 60 private equity firms that we work with that have investments in the uh, Marcom space, they often have uh, looked to use the bolt-ons to, to grow their existing, uh, their existing business. Great, and um, what you're describing is what I think may be more familiar to our listening audience as a roll-up. So starting the platform, adding the bolt-ons, what, what they are typically doing is rolling up a group of companies into a larger company to get a future higher multiple that we will talk about momentarily. But I did want to reflect on one thing you said, because it's often an area of concern, and that's about economies of scale, cutting a CFO, to keep in mind, because this is always a question owners have when selling a, a, their company is, what will happen to my staff? Remember that Marcom companies are not manufacturing firms. You're not being bought for your production line and your equipment, and the idea is to cut as much of your staff as you can to minimize costs. Your staff are your assets. And so typically what we see in this space is that, yes, as Chuck just described, administrative functions, back office kind of support may very well be cut in this type of acquisition, but generally talent, the creative folks, the client relationship folks, the account executives are not typically cut because those are the assets that are being acquired. Yeah, absolutely, Scott. You know, when you acquire a Marcom company, when you acquire most successful companies, what you're actually acquiring is a good management team. Very rarely are you just buying physical assets that you can just, you know, plug in somewhere else and make money off of. So I couldn't agree more with you that that is the case. And, um, you know, in terms of um, my introduction to Tobin Left, as you might recall, it was actually on a roll-up transaction I do. where yeah. we, uh, we partnered together and um, they were out there acquiring um, firms in, you know, in the 750 range and they had a strategy to bring these firms together and to, to um, keep all the people, nearly all the people minus one or two administrative, but their real uh, opportunity there was to, to allow the exchange of ideas and some of the best practices of each of these smaller firms to be shared with the other firms and they've actually had a quite successful run on their roll up and um, it's, it's been good. So yeah, you're right. Um, in the Marcom space in many, many industries, most industries you're acquiring the people, but you will still take advantage of the economy of scales. So I have an agency that um, a PE, a private equity firm is interested in. What can I anticipate as a type of deal structure they might be presenting to me? There are uh, two common, uh, the most common structures, there are, there are more, but the two most common structures for uh, private equity are what's called venture capital, and the second one uh, is called a leveraged buyout. And venture capital is more of a general term, and it's uh, most often used in relation to taking uh, an equity investment in a young company that can't get money from somewhere else, and it's in a less mature industry. And, and you could think about like the, the internet firms that existed in the mid to late 90s. Uh, 
the money that went into those was, was, was venture capital. And uh, private uh, equity firms are able to get a significant piece of these firms because they can't get money anywhere else. And by guiding the, um, the target firm's inexperienced managed team, as is often the case in startups, uh, private equity firms add a lot of value. But of the two common approaches uh, for private equity investing, venture capital just does not match up with, with Marcom. And the, what they really need for a, a Marcom is what is known as a leverage buyout. And leverage buyouts are exactly what they sound. A, ter, uh, a, a firm, a Marcom firm is bought out by a private equity uh, firm and the, uh, the purchase is uh, uh, financed through debt, which is collateralized by the underlying assets. And this debt can be traditional bank debt. This can be seller-backed financing, um, which is sometimes called an earnout. And more sophisticated private equity firms use um, something called mezzanine financing, which really gets beyond the scope of what we're going to talk about here today. But they've got a lot of ways to finance these leverage buyouts. And um, the, uh, the acquirer, the private equity firm, uh, seeks to purchase the, the Marcom company with the funds acquired um, through the use of uh, the target as sort of collateral. So they're going to use the underlying assets. And a, a leveraged buyout, uh, private equity firms are able to purchase companies with only having to put a fraction of the purchase price in. And that's really a key to their model, just a fraction of the purchase price. And by leveraging the investment, private equity uh, firms aim to maximize uh, the potential return. The leverage uh, part of the buyout is really the key. And private um, equity firm has um, plenty of other uh, techniques to improve results and, and, and what have you. But they're called leverage buyouts. And I say they're called leverage buyouts because they're called that. They're not called improved margin buyouts or cash flow optimization buyouts. They're leverage buyouts because the biggest driver of the value is the leverage. So when a private equity firm makes an investment, it's buying a series of future cash flows. And let's think of these cash flows as a combination of dollars available for interest payments, as well as profits available to the private equity firm. So, um, Scott, let me give you some examples about what happens when private equity makes an investment. And I'm just going to use some, some really round numbers because I think it's easier to, to hear on a podcast. And I'm going to talk about companies trading at a multiple of 10. But that's only meant to be representative of simple math that's easy to explain without a whiteboard or without a PowerPoint. So, when a, when a private equity firm acquires um, a company, it's acquiring a series of cash flows. It's a combination of of dollars that are eventually going to be available for interest payments for the leverage as well as the profits to the private equity firm. Now let's assume that a company has an earnings of a million dollars and the private equity firm agrees to pay $10 million, again just using really simple round numbers, um, and that that company acquired has no debt. If the private equity firm were to invest $10 million of its own cash, at the end of the year they will have made 10% on their investment or $1 million divided by the $10 million. Um, that's not bad, but you have to understand that private equity is really looking to get closer to 40% per year on their money. Um, so now let's assume that the private equity firm were able to go out to the bank and the bank's going to lend them the entire $10 million and they're able to fund the acquisition with an interest rate of, of 4%. At the end of the year, they'd have to pay the $400,000 of interest to the bank. And um, the remaining $600 million would be, or $600,000 would be, would be pure profit to them. Now, the private equity returns in theory are infinite because the bank financed the entire purchase price of, of um, 
$10 million and they didn't put anything down. But, but this, this would never happen in reality. You know, you're not going to get 100% financing from a private, uh, on a private equity deal through, through bank financing or even mezzanine. They're always going to have to put some um, skin in the game and some capital in the game. But, but their goal is to always put the minimum in because it will increase the return to the, to the maximum. So let's assume that the, uh, the bank will only loan them 50% of the purchase price. So on this $10 million deal, um, now they're going to have to put $5 million of their own money in and $5 million of the bank money. The 4% that interest paid to the bank is, is $200,000 per year. So um, at the end of the year, they're going to take the um, million dollars of profits, less the $200,000 of, of interest, and there's $800,000 of, of profits for them. And they're going to take that $800,000 divided by the um, $5 million they invested, and they're going to calculate a return of 16%. It's much better than if they invested the, uh, the $10 million on their own and um, getting 10%, but it's still not where they want to get to. Now, I'm going to give you an example of what we really see happening in terms of just the percentages and the way that they're allocated on deals and how this works out in terms of what the private equity return would be in the Marcom space. Now, if you assume it's a $10 million deal and um, the um, uh, the private equity company only invests $2 million and he's able to pay the, the seller back through a $2 million earn out and they borrow $6 million from the bank. When you run that through the math, at the end of the year, they come up with about a 38% return. And that's kind of where they're, aim they're, they're aiming for. So they're going to use a combination of, of earn outs, uh, external debt, as well as the minimum amount of their own capital to get those returns. So that's great. So that tells me how private equity uh, makes a bundle of cash when they buy my company. How does that translate into value for me? Why, why do I want to do a deal like that to help private equity earn more? How does that mean I'm going to get more for my company? Potentially? Yeah, so the thing about private equity is, is they'll see value in your company and they'll generally be perhaps the high bidder and because of the high bidder, they're going to see value. So just by the fact that they're buying you, they're probably the highest bidder and they see value. And you shouldn't be as concerned about, about that number as just sort of getting the right value for your company. But with that being said, um, if you retain an interest in the company uh, and you say keep 20% of your investment, now you, you can let, invest alongside the private equity firm. Um, so let's assume that, you know, again, we'll just stick with these round $10 million numbers and um, you're going to keep $2 million in uh, to the company. Due to the uses of leverage and other nuances of the deal, when the seller collects the remaining 20% when the firm, they're probably only going to get $4 million. So if you're supposed to get three to five times your money in three to five years, you'd think you'd get an additional six to $10 million, but you're really only going to get four, but that's still great. You know, you've doubled your money in, in, in three to five years. And we can explore that topic in the future in another one of these podcasts and the details of that, but, but that's really the reality. The only way you're going to get that treatment is something called parapasu treatment. And parapasu is a Latin term, and it means um, on equal footing. And if a seller out there is thinking about private equity, what they really need to make sure of is that they ask for parapasu. When they ask for that, people understand that they want to be treated equally because deals can be structured in a way that um, the private equity firm can make a lot more money of, on you on the front end as well. You have to remember when they're buying you, you're not partners yet. You're sort of the prey. 
and they're going to structure that deal in a way that's in their best interest and they can make more money on the deal up front if they structure it better. So just keep in mind to, to get the right sort of advice and to make sure that if you do keep an uh, equity interest that you get that equal footing. So if, if I'm doing a deal with private equity and I've got a been guided well so that I get parapassu treatment, what hap what's happening, the way my return gets increased is because they are paying me cash up front and then I retain some equity in the platform that I become a part of and the private equity, the private equity firm, their approach is to put enough companies into this platform that when they resell it, they can get a higher multiple for it than they paid for the smaller companies because it's a bigger company. And my equity participation, what's called my second bite of the apple, gets to enjoy that higher per multiple than I got on my initial sale. Is that kind of what's going on here? Yeah, that's exactly what's going on. There's a combination of those things, but but you know, it's just the nuances of the deal. And when you get into one, and if you if you have a company worth ten million and you're leaving twenty percent behind, you're not going to actually leave the two million behind. And that's why I just didn't want to go into all those details. But yeah, that's that's exactly what happens. You get the benefit of that. And you get all the other benefits of, of the private equity firms and what they can do to uh, to help you um, on the on the deals. And you know, um, in terms of just growing your own company, you know, their access to capital is, is amazing, and um, they always have what we refer to as dry powder. And this dry powder can be used to do an acquisition right after an acquisition. And many companies just don't have that opportunity. Many companies that that don't have the the backing of a private equity group when they do um, an acquisition. They have to, as I like to say, digest it and restore the retained earnings to do another one. But when you invest alongside private equity or, or, or acquired by private equity, you can do a deal right after you've done a deal. And that's that's a huge advantage. And these private equity managers will bring a business acumen that can really help a company from better understanding its own results to improving its operations to providing financing and tax planning strategies that that would not be available to a company of that size. So. So there's just so many opportunities. You know, we talked about the connections with the annual meetings. I'm a big fan of those. That's a great opportunity to have an annual, we get together with a C-suite group. Um, it's, um, it's, it's, um, it's really a, a wealth of opportunities. And um, one of the things that's, that, that, that's just a proven fact, and there's this group out there called the Boston Consulting Group, and uh, it's a well-known study and you can Google it, but it, it's gonna tell you that um, two thirds of the private equity deals uh, over a period of 10 years resulted in growing annual profits by 20%, 20% per year growth in annual profits. And nearly half of these deals grew by more than 50% per year. Now, um, you have to dig into the underlying data. And uh, what you would find is that, um, that some of that profits comes from bolt-ons. So if a company, you know, a, pl a platform is formed and it's got, you know, $5 million of EBITDA and it does two bolt-ons at $2 million of, of EBITDA in total. And now all of a sudden it's grown its earnings by 40%. So there's a little bit of that going on in gamesmanship, but the reality is, is they know how to grow the bottom line. So there are, good to hear, there are other benefits besides the financial from joining with private equity. And we certainly, from deals we've done at Tobin Left and talked to the financial benefits, uh, 
that the pri private equity deals we've done also tend to have a couple very positive deal structure benefits, one of which you already mentioned, Chuck, which is that they skew towards the upper end of multiples that we see for our companies that we represent. And the other thing that is very valuable to owners is they generally pay a much higher percentage of the price at closing. So what, what we've been seeing with the deals we've done in this space is anywhere from 70 to 75% of the total transaction, our sellers are getting in cash at closing, which compares to a more typical deal with a strategic buyer selling to another agency where you might only get 30 or 40% of the deal price in cash at closing. So that becomes another strong positive. Yeah, it really is. It, it just takes the risk off the table. If you get 75% of your money up front versus 35, you know, that's, a, that's an enormous difference. And then you don't have nearly as much at risk going forward. So we've talked about there are a lot of benefits potentially to a private equity deal. Private equity, as a result of which, is a bit selective in who they'll take on. You already mentioned some of the financial uh, bottom line benchmarks they tend to look for to even consider an acquisition. What else does private equity look for in a company that it wants to acquire? So um, the first and then the foremost in the Marcom space is they're going to look for the recurring revenues. They're going to look for it either through agreements or commitments. They just want to see that recurring revenue stream. Um, they don't want to be involved with a company that you know has to resell 100% of its revenues every single year. That's just just too much risk. And and companies that are going to have those recurring revenue are going to have a strong uh, market position. Um, they're also going to have a lack of concentration of credit risk. That's a very common financial term. And and what this means is um, you don't want to have two or three of your clients comprise 30 or 40% of your revenue because they'll look at the firm and they'll say, well, if one or two of those companies leave, all of a sudden you're no longer profitable. So they're gonna to wanna to see a diversity in a client base. And they're also gonna see the verticals. You know, They're not gonna to wanna to see you having 80% of your revenue in the uh, travel industry. They're gonna to wanna to see you uh, across a multitude of, 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 of industries to give yourself some, um, uh, just basically to reduce the concentration of, of credit risk. And they're gonna look for growth opportunities and they're gonna look for significant future growth. You know, if you have great, uh, margins in the Marcom space and you're doing uh, stuff in the paper print newspaper ad space, it doesn't matter how good your margins are, they're not gonna be interested. Alternatively, if you're continuing to invest in your sales engine optimization techniques and you're seeing a lot of growth in that area, uh, private equity is gonna to wanna to know a lot more about you because they're gonna to wanna to invest in that space because they know that that's where the future is. So um, those are gonna be the things that they're gonna look for. They're gonna look for the companies that are gonna have the future revenue streams as well as the current recurring revenue streams that support the growth strategies. Great points. And I'd just add to that in terms of growth they're looking for. They also are looking for growth trends in your company. Setting this year with COVID aside, they are going to, in our experience, be much more reluctant if your year-over-year top-line and bottom-line revenues aren't showing consistent upward trending. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's what, I, what we talked about earlier when I was saying that that was one of the core uh, uh, things for any leveraged buyer, which is what these are going to be. They're going to want to see that consistent pattern of growing both the top line and the bottom line. And you can have your blips from COVID or, you know, for what have you, but they want to see a pattern there. And the pattern should be over, you know, at least five years. They're not going to be excited that you grew it in two years. So that's, we've painted the rosy picture, I, I think, I hope, so far. How about the downsides? What, what, yeah, so, what are your cautionary words? Yeah, so the downside is, you know, um, remember, they, they buy your company to sell your company. And they're going to sell it in three to five years. That's, that's their goal. And um, their deals, these deals, the private equity deals, when they acquire you, it's financially driven. And um, you're going to uh, have to um, uh, have a willingness to, to, to relegate your legacy, the preservation of your, your agency, and possibly the, the long-term job security of, of those staff that have helped you grow. When you're going to give that up. And you have to understand that they're going to see your business a little differently than you do. And they're going to see it with a financial, uh, you know, perspective of three to five years. Maybe you see it as, you know, a young staff is going to be good in 20 years and they're not going to be as interested in the ones that are going to produce in the next three to five. And this is one of the reasons why um, some uh, firms candidly choose not to sell a private equity. You know, the uh, preservation of, of, of the firm, the way they founded and the way they operated and, and the culture they have created is more important than the potential premium that uh, pricing uh, a private equity firm would apply to that firm. So we do see sometimes people turn away from private equity because they understand sort of the nature of that beast that they're in it to make money and to get out. And that comes with a cost. I also um, can't uh, sort of uh, underestimate the stress that being owned by private equity can place on a business. And the stress comes because they tend to leverage the business as much as they possibly can. And so companies that are used to being cash rich and having plenty of money to do whatever they want, whenever they want, and not having to worry about it, are now going to find themselves managing cash on a weekly, monthly basis. Um, there's this thing called a 13-week cash flow that's very popular in a private equity where they just want to know what your cash is going to be for the next 13 weeks so they can minimize it and take that, that cash and reinvest it somewhere else. And so um, sellers are going to find themselves operating in a business environment that's very different than it was before with the reporting to the, um, to the private equity, with the, the monthly or quarterly board meetings, with, with the, the expectation for data sharing, it's gonna be um, uh, very different. Uh, going back to the importance of deal structure, I'm gonna tell a quick story here about uh, uh, and how an uneducated seller can affect and give control of their, their company away with no cash investment from the buyer. Again, basically, I don't wanna say they're stealing your company, but um, as you'll see through this story, which is it's true, it, it, it can be the result. So um, it was 2000 and I was working on my first M&A transaction for the family office that had hired me. And the seller of the company was really highly motivated. He's in an awkward position of selling the company or turning it over to his son-in-law. As a side note, he ended up being completely right about his son-in-law because after he sold us the company, um, he started the son-in-law in a company and two years later, that company filed for bankruptcy. So the deal was, it was 14.4, but we'll just call it 15 million that we agreed to, uh, to, to pay for the company. And of that uh, 15 million, we were paying 80% of the purchase price at closing or 12 million. So I uh, went down to First Union, who was a bank at the time and then eventually became part of Wells Fargo. And with the underlying assets, I was able to get a $12 million loan um, uh, against the company assets. 
And um, there was a requirement for a personal guarantee for, uh, for about a third of that amount by the, by the principals, but really no cash down at this point in time. And we're all set for the closing and we've had all the lawyers and the accountants on both sides sign up. And uh, we flew into to Charlotte and the seller met us at the airport. And the seller had his pleasantries with, with my principals, the, the people that owned the family office. And then he asked if he could, um, he could speak with me privately. And I uh, of course obliged, I was expecting to get a thank you or be complimented or well, what a pleasure it was to work with me. But Scott, I couldn't have been more wrong. He put his arm around me and he pulled me in close and he just started you know, yelling at me and calling me all kinds of explicatives. And what he was saying is, you were buying my company and not putting any money down and using his 20% as, of equity as collateral for the bank debt. And he says to me, this is not the first time he sold a company. He's not going to go for this deal and I'd better straighten this out or else, you know, if his son-in-law takes over, you know, he's going to come back to, to get me. And he, he's a pretty opposing character. And now the truth be told, um, I didn't have any malice when I set up the deal. It was really innocent. Um, I just set up the deal the, a way that I thought made sense. And, um, you know, with the closing schedule for the next day, uh, I had to scramble to work over a new deal, which, which eventually we did. And we agreed to pay him the $3 million of his underlying equity over the next three years. And so in the end, we ended up working it out. But, you know, um, you know the, the moral of the story is there that, you know, his accountants and lawyers signed off on it. And everybody was in agreement. And fortunately, this guy caught it. I really didn't intend to, to deceive him at all. And um, he saved himself from basically giving his company away. Uh, where we were going to take 80% of the of the ownership of the company with with no money down, and um, th one of the, the best parts of the story is that eventually this 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 uh, gentleman and I became the closest of friends. And when I go to Charlotte, I uh, I stay at his house and we both enjoy red wine. And occasionally, after a few glasses of red wine, he likes to tell me about how I tried to steal his company and he spoiled my plans. Um, but it really is important that that sellers beware when entering into deal with private equity because that deal structure is often used in private equity, where they will leverage as much as possible, where they will take seller financing for another piece and their actual cash equity for an 80% interest represents maybe one or 2% of the underlying value. Well, an important lesson learned and one we can certainly and will certainly keep in mind with our clients. Chuck, th thank you. Um, I think you've made it quite clear why my partner David Tobin and I were so excited to have you join Tobin Left as one of our newer partners. Great. Yeah, I'm, I'm, ex I'm excited to be here. I mean, the transactions I've worked on, it's, it's been a pleasure. And, uh, you know, it's, um, it's nice to really be value add. You know, the, the engagements I've been on, it's been, it's been a pleasure to, to um, sit alongside people that have, have built something. I've not uh, been very active on the uh, on the acquisition side, really on the sales side, as you know. And it's just really a pleasure to help them um, celebrate uh, the fruits of their labor and, and structure the deal in a way to get them the maximum value. There's so much more in here, as, as you know, David, that, that we do. Um, I'm sorry, Scott. Um, yeah. There's so much more. We're interchangeable. <laughs> yeah, in, in some ways we all are, right? But, uh, but we, we have such complementary skills, but it's just such a thrill to, um, to work alongside these people and to, uh, to really allow them to, to get that maximum uh, of fruits of their labor. And um, that to me, as you know, is, is, is the thrill of the deal more than anything else. And mm -hmm. we're all here for different reasons, but there's, there's just incredible job satisfaction when right. um, you know, somebody starts off like that first deal that David and I worked on and um, 
the seller ended up getting about 50% um, more than the initial offer through what we were able to do and deal structure and what have you. So yeah, it's, 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 it's great to be part of Tell Them Left. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you for listening. I suspect that today's podcast may have generated as many questions as it did answers, maybe more. So as always, feel free to reach out to Chuck, to me, to any of us. Thanks again for listening and stay healthy, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Tobin Leff M&A podcast, produced by Hannah Vaughn with music by Holt Vaughn. Visit our website at tobinleff.com for case studies, additional resources, and to get in touch with our experts. Subscribe today and never miss an episode.